You are listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode 27. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the CSP Podcast. Always glad to have you back. Today's episode is going to be autism-centric. I'm welcoming Lynn Medley to the program. Lynn Medley from the Philadelphia suburbs uh, of Medley and Maseric Therapy Associates. Uh, Lynn came to me via a listener suggestion, and this listener happens to be an employee at this practice at Medley and Maseric Therapy Associates. We'll talk a little bit about her at the end of the episode, but... um, uh, we had an awesome conversation, and we Linz has a strong interest in social cognition, and she talks to me a little bit about uh, her about the, the struggles that we all have in defining both uh, where our kids are in terms of the skills, uh, where they need to be, where they need, where they need to go, and how that is a challenge depending on what age they first come to see us as therapists. Uh, in terms of what goals they have, what goals their parents, guardians have, or collectively the educators, the team has. So we talk a lot about social cognition. Uh, Lynn is currently creating a social cognitive scales uh, where she's way, that's this is way off into the future that this is going to be released, but she's trying to gather research and information from uh, different places to come up with a good way to really pinpoint and define our kids' uh, strengths and needs in social cognition. We talk about the uses, the use of motivation and rewards. Um, we talk about the difficulties and challenges of group instruction versus one-on-one teaching. Uh, we talk about uh, peer relationships and the challenges of getting good social groups together and why using peer buddies sometimes can not lead to the desired outcomes. And with that, let's just go ahead and jump into this conversation. Thank you, as always, for listening. Okay, well, thanks for uh, joining me here today. Um, I wanted to ask you because it is, we're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday. And right. um, just to start this podcast off, if you have any uh, Super Bowl predictions. You know, I know that it's football and someone will win and someone will lose. That's about all I know, Jeff. That's good enough for me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of cool to see your you know, powers of prediction that, you know, we're recording this on Super Bowl and this is going to air probably a month out or something like that. And very poor, very, very poor. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, I'm not a huge football fan, but uh, <laughs> I'm told the Carolina Panthers have the edge today, so we'll see. Ah, cool. That's my alma mater, actually. Yes, that's right. So why don't we start there, actually? That's a great segue. Um, All right. So I wanted to start this podcast. This is a very, we have no agenda here except to let the audience know more about you. So we'll do the bio part first, and then we can kind of get into some, get into the weeds here as far as autism goes. But um, I understand you studied at the University of North Carolina. Is that correct? I did. I did my master's degree there. Okay. And from there, so uh, where did you do undergrad? Is that in North Carolina? At Vanderbilt University. Okay. So you went from Tennessee to North Carolina, and you stayed in North Carolina for a little bit. Is that right? 
That's true. A couple of years, yeah. A couple of years. And I know you're just looking at your bio on your website. Uh, you were uh, getting some training, additional training in the TEACH program there. And uh, from there, it looks like you moved on to uh, Johns Hopkins at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. That's right. I was really very lucky. They were opening the Center for Autism and Related Disorders at that point. Yeah. And I lucked into being their first employee. Wow. That's What was that like? You know, it was a little crazy because there was nothing to follow at that point. We were just creating as we thought made sense um, and creating as we went. And it grew and grew and grew. And it's it's uh, still running very uh, well as we speak. Yeah. Now, just, a, you know, this is an interesting, um, you've been a, a speech pathologist about as long as I have, I think. I, I finished my master's in 98. Well, I think, I think you finished yours a little bit earlier. Is that right? I did. I think it was 92. Okay. I so, believe. yeah. So a bit longer than myself. Now, the interesting thing is, I think you, it seems that you've been uh, in the world of autism, in the field of autism, since your graduate school days. And it, it's really been your career. Is that correct? It really has been. You know, I, as an undergrad, I took a work study job at a child development center at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with the kids who came through who were autistic. They just fascinated me. And so I chose my graduate program based on a community that was strong in autism. Mm-hmm. And then I went from there. Okay, so getting back to, okay, so that's it, it, interesting. But, you know, getting to the Kennedy Krieger Institute, I'm wondering in, in the days where you, where you were one of the, the very first in there as, the, uh, as an employee there, was there a, did they kind of glom onto a, a theory, a type of therapy? What, was there a, a certain bent that they had there at the time? I guess if I had to choose one, I would say it was a, um, a natural environment teaching kind of format. Mm-hmm. The diagnostic piece was really the big the reason that people came to Kennedy yeah. and came from all over the world. But in the therapy side of things, we really followed a more natural environment teaching kind of format in the beginning. And then over time, we picked up a lot in the realm of um, applied behavioral analysis and more control of the environment. Uh, that's kind of where I wanted, I wanted to spend some time because the, the, the sense that I have from your bio is that you really seemed to have inhabited both sides. You know, if you look at if you look at the the range of therapies in autism, you know, we definitely have like the more naturalistic child led to the more, um, uh, for lack of better world uh, word, controlled sort of environment. And it seems that you sort of had exposure to a little bit of everything. You know, kind of all sides. Is that that be fair to say? You know, it's it's been a great ride. And one of the things my father taught me when I was little was when someone offers you an opportunity, you say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's going to bring what it's going to bring. But I was so lucky because while I was doing my work at Teach and in the world of speech pathology, there was this huge, wonderful uh, occupational therapy practice there in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And I said yes to a part-time job there and learned maybe more than I learned in speech graduate school, mm-hmm. about the way that the neuro- neurological system worked. Mm-hmm. You know, OTs just have this amazing grasp. Um, so the sensory regulation piece really changed the way I practiced. And then here came the world of Lovos. Mm-hmm. 
the applied behavioral analysis world. So I worked in home programs everywhere I went and took all the training I could get. Um, and I kind of still focus and, and focus that way. Something's new coming. Let's hear what it is. Let's yeah. see how we can involve it in our practice. Um, but in, I think in some ways I was in the right place at the right time yeah. often, and said yes to what came my way. That's a, that's kind of refreshing because, the, you know, it seemed, I, I didn't get into autism in a, in a real big way until around 2001, but you know, it really seemed that for a good chunk of my career, you had all these camps with uh, different, you know, labels and name brand programs. And it's almost like there was this message that you had to align yourself with just one way of doing things or one way of seeing things. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one who sees it that way, but. No, I think it's still, there's still some degree of that. Yeah, and but you're um, right. It was worse in the '90s and the early 2000s. Yes, and you know, I it, it reminds me. I was I was just thinking of the. Uh, did you? Uh, oh, what's the name of the book? Uh, uh, the Ron Suskind book about his son Owen. Um, I'm blanking right now. I'll put it in the notes if I don't think of it during the podcast. But he talks about oh, Life Animated. Sorry. So uh, you know, he he talked about after his son's diagnosis in the early '90s, uh, going to a talk given by Lovas um, in the Maryland area. And uh, it, in those days, I think his choice, everyone kept telling him, you really have, there's really, the, the, two, the two major therapies were, were choosing between a Lovas ABA program and floor time. <laughs> and uh, he opted to choose uh, floor time at first. But uh, if anyone hasn't read the book, I mean, I, I highly recommend it. It's an interesting read. Um, so I, we'll get more into that in a second. But um, so from Kennedy Krieger... Um, after working there and getting experience, you then went, well, you, I know you worked as a adjunct faculty member there, right? I did. I did some teaching there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I see they had the, uh, the master's certificate in autism. And I'm just curious about that program in particular. Was that mostly speech pathologists in that uh, curriculum or is that, uh, or in that, Actually, in that certificate? No, no. It's mostly special educators. Okay. And this was another case of right place, right time. That was the first master's certificate in the country mm. in autism. And so, again, we were forging our way. Um, there are many others now, and I'm really excited about that. But at the time, I was teaching, I think, all special educators. I remember having a programmer in one of my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly they were special educators. What was the curriculum back like, like back when it first started? My particular course that I taught was about the ways that you can, it's, it's, it's interesting since we were just talking about this, the ways that you can meld methodology mm-hmm. and choose methodology specific to a child's needs and then do that in the classroom. Hmm, interesting. And my teach background is really what prepared me for the classroom piece of it. Sure. Well, that's. I think you, you hit upon a, an interesting you know, aspect. I really feel that it's almost like you know, in in AAC, they talk a lot about feature matching, and mm-hmm. I really think that that's kind of what needs to happen when looking at uh, each child in the spectrum. Um, is that they have to be seen not in terms of uh, necessarily the background and the training that you have, but what what they bring to the table and uh, what they might need the most at a particular time. So. Yeah, absolutely. And the kids on the spectrum are so dramatically different, you know, and it's really, I don't know if disheartening would be the right word, but for clinicians, for all of the diagnoses to just have come together into one, 
mm-hmm. um, makes it a really hard puzzle to solve when a child comes in and the diagnosis they have is autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. Because man, is that a spectrum? It a huge one. And uh, I I think for me, I was lucky enough in my in my uh, my current job. I think at uh, 2010 when I finally. You know, I had all this experience as a private practice uh, you know, person, but when my caseload really shot up after working in the schools, I really, for the first time, I think I got a real sense. I'm like, oh my goodness, there is a huge uh, <laughs> diversity within this population that, you know, even, even up till 2010, I, it had never really uh, hit me. So, yeah. Um, okay. So from there, you did go, you went into uh, private practice and you moved to the Philadelphia suburbs in 2002, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you've been there ever since. And talk to me. So your, your practice is called, oh, your, your, your coworker or your, the co uh, owner of the therapy practice is Janice and pronounce her last name for me. Sure. It's Maseric. Maseric. Okay. So she came a little bit later, but you both uh, run this practice. Talk to me about what your practice is uh, set up to be. Uh, what if there's a specialty uh, that you you tend to focus on your practice? Uh, what sure. If, yeah. You know, I knew Janice from uh, Kennedy Krieger, and Pennsylvania was home for her. And I moved here because my husband at the time took a job in this area, and so the two minds came back together. And um, we had such similar training and such similar interests that it was a really a real natural fit. Um, Jan and I focus primarily on autism spectrum disorders, um, particularly on the social communication aspects. And then we have this side interest in um, apraxia, dyspraxia, uh, the ways that that interweaves with and without social cognition deficits. Mm-hmm. The practice more broadly, it's it's a small practice. I think we have three full-time people, one after-school person in addition to Jan and me. And um, those folks all have their own areas of interest. Uh, feeding is a big one, too. Mm-hmm. But it all kind of starts in autism. Most of our clients fall somewhere on the spectrum. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, is most, are most of your service uh, services us? Uh, center-based? Most of them are. Um, we do a fair amount of school consult work. And so by a fair amount, I'd say my personal practice is probably 60% out of the office and 40% in. And Janice, my business partner's practice is the reverse. Hmm. Um, most of our employees are in-house with the exception of one person who does also does some individual practice at a private school. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So I, you know, I just have a million questions, but I'm going (laughs) to, as someone who runs a private practice, I want to ask you, because I I work private practice uh, part-time and most of my, you know, clients, uh, you know, for instance, I have, I have a client who has, you know, on the, well, a couple of clients on the autism spectrum. Um, And, I always one thing that's always struck me is that you know he he gets like a lot of kids he gets services from an OT private OT private behavioral <laughs> therapist uh, other other private other other services here and there and I think one of the hardest things for someone working in private practice is that I see this guy one time a week yeah and it's the, to me the biggest challenge is always prioritizing what are we going to work on on that one time a week. Because you can't, you can't cover it all. 
And, right. you know, and for me, I always, it always comes down to, especially in, over the last five years since I've taken this, this school job, uh, when, you know, it, it, once in a while, because I only have a small number of kids and some of them have been with me for a long time, you know, it's always about when I do get a new client and it's always about talking to the parents, very, very upfront, upfront with uh, them about the fact that, you know, if we're going to meet one time a week, what are we going to focus on? And um, sometimes there's, we really have to talk about this at length because parents just sort of have this idea that they need extra therapy, but really not thinking about what it is that they uh, want to really uh, uncover. And I was wondering if, do you, mm-hmm. do you kind of run into that? And how do you, how do you work around that? We absolutely run into it. And we have, I, I, sh- I would say we have some kids who come once a week, uh, 45 minutes or an hour. And we have some kids who come four and five times a week. Now, I will tell you that those folks almost always have some interesting uh, funding line mm-hmm. <laughs> because private practice is expensive. It is. So yeah. they've either had some lawsuit with a school district or some fund that got set up from someone. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not your typical uh, situation. When we do have the kids who can only come once a week, and um, that, that is the majority of our practice, we do have to sit down and make a very clear treatment plan. And we typically take the first month of individual therapy to do some probing and to try to figure out what that's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then we sit down with the family and say, this would be what we would suggest, um, but these are not set in stone. Tell us what you really want to work on. And in that set, I would say there's usually a expressive language, a receptive language, maybe even an artic goal, but most of them are social language. Mm-hmm. Most of them are, are, are social connection or social cognition. Okay. So in looking, going off on that, I'm just curious how, uh, have, have you found it, uh, it's relatively easy, difficult in terms of working with providers at school districts as far as uh, weaving the goals that you come up with in the private practice with things that are going on in the school. What does that look like? Incredibly tricky. Yeah. You know, mostly time consuming. I mean, I think if everyone had all the time in the world, uh, we would be more available and they would be more able, mm-hmm. you know, to meet. Um our best scenarios are when we have some consult time from a school district, um, but we don't always have that. And so we do our best to check in either by phone or by email periodically. But there are lots of folks we don't ever speak to their speech therapist. Mm-hmm. It's cool. I don't like to admit that. Yeah, nobody um, does. <laughs> but yeah, but it's it's the, the name of the or the nature of the creature, I guess. It is, uh, it is. And we are lucky because we often do have... Uh, some time that is set aside by a district or specifically by a family because they want to make sure that it happens mm-hmm. so, in order to do that. Yeah. So now getting into this uh, social cognition, uh, do you follow a set curriculum? Hey, I know I know. Uh, we can get into this a little bit later. I know you're kind of creating your own scales. Um, we are. You know, we, we um, rely heavily on the work of Michelle Garcia Winner, mm-hmm. certainly in the social cognition realm. But, well, and, and I should also say we, in the social engagement realm, so that younger skill set that's really more about connection mm-hmm. than it is about thinking, um, we have the, we have floor time, 
uh, RDI, Relationship Development Intervention, um, Barry Brazant and his work, we have those more child-led techniques Mm -hmm. at our fingertips, and we rely on them a lot. We find is, and the reason we are creating our own tools is because we don't have a very good list from beginning to end of what you should work on and what order you should work on these things, what the typical development of these skills are. And since we don't have an assessment, we don't have a great curriculum either. Yes. I, you know, I think, uh, I think you hit upon something there and it was making me, as you were saying this, I was thinking about, you know, talking just even about uh, theory of mind. Um, Mm -hmm. So most of people, most people think in terms, um, at least I do, it's sort of like, you know, as a starting point, maybe um, a level one theory of mind where you're thinking uh, about what, you know, that boy is sitting in the other room is thinking, right? But, you know, I was listening to, uh, who said this a little while back, another podcast where a neuroscientist was saying, you know, maybe we need to even step back from that and talk about an, an even a more primitive level of theory of mind where one's even appreciative that there's another sentient being in the same room as you. Yeah. I am 100% on board there. You know, I, we encounter, and we do a lot of evaluations, so this is partially why we encounter all these kids, but we encounter a lot of 10, 11, 18, 21-year-olds who we evaluate and we say, his social skill is somewhere between five and 10 years old. And often we are saying closer to six. Mm-hmm. So even kids who are doing really well, fully included, um, conversational, their social skills are falling way down on the, on the spectrum. And we think of social skills as having that sort of social engagement period, that connectivity period that really begins in infancy and takes you up into 8, 9, 10, sort of the elementary school years. You're still learning how to read nonverbal cues Mm -hmm. and who is in the room and why are they here and can any good come of this, you know, kind of of skills. But then between 5 and 10, the perspective-taking piece kicks in. Mm -hmm. That's really when kids start to do that. And coincidentally, it's when they start to do visual imaging. So take something someone says and turn it into an image, mm. both of which are impaired in a whole lot of our kids. So if you only do a little bit of that, or you never, you, so you sort of get to that first level that you're describing, but you don't get past it, mm-hmm. then it's going to be really hard to turn any of the rules people are giving you yeah. into thoughtful practice. And if you can't do the thinking piece, your motivation dissipates mm-hmm. right so kids kind of give up so we we often say take your kid who is able to tell you how it how to do it but isn't doing it mm-hmm. and go back and look at these infant and preschool skills yeah so you have to kind of go backwards yeah um, we spend a lot of time doing that yeah and i i think that uh so just to back up real quick how long have you been working on the these scales now that you've been uh, developing we have been gradually throwing everything we find into a hat, you yeah. know. But really in the last two years, we have ordered these skills in the way that we think they're important in ASD 
and compared them to what we know from the typical literature and from the autism literature. Mm-hmm. And so we're starting to put those, that progression in a, in a set of probes, or I should say add probes to the set, to the progression so that we could start to say, here's a way to go back and look at some of those skills that we may have missed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be very interesting to see when it comes out, because I know, in the in the program that I work that I work on, it's 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 interesting because the my caseload has shifted um, over the last couple of years. So just to let you and the audience know, um, you know, I, I work in an educational life skills program. So most of the kids, uh, at least when I started, would be classified as moderate to severe. And as we know, like in a, in a Michelle Garcia uh, program kind of program, uh, those you know social cognitive skills are taught to children generally speaking uh, with uh, IQs of 70 and greater and uh, many if not most of the kids when I first started my present job wouldn't have uh, fallen into that Uh, so we were working more on I guess for lack of a better term functional communication uh, a lot of AAC work and over the last couple of years um, our program has shifted a bit and we're finding uh, some of the classrooms that have opened up we're getting more kids who would who um, would fit into that uh, that other tier where they could benefit from uh, some social cognitive uh, uh, work, and I've been doing more some more of those uh, groups lately, and uh, I'm sort of having to brush up again and trying to figure out stages and teaching. You know what would naturally come next, and it is you know even using, and we have a lot of uh, good texts uh, in our in our district, but. It's still uh, quite a challenge, and I think this idea of having sort of a, uh, a logical progression as you're describing it and looking at these skills in a very hierarchical fashion, I think, can uh, be very useful. It's kind of amazing it's not out there, um, at least in my mind. But I think yeah. that that first group you described, the kids that were um, more classically life skills, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, we run up to that five to ten year bracket and we hit abstraction. Right. So cognitively, they're not moving so far past that five to 10. But then there's this whole new group that you're describing that can think abstractly Mm -hmm. and they're still stuck there. Mm -hmm. And that seems more related to perspective and imaging and those holes that fall underneath it. So the kid who is so excited to see you is only talking about his own topic um, wants you there to be the recipient of what he has to say, mm-hmm. but is not motivated enough to change his behavior so that peers will stick with him through yeah. that kind of, you know, discussion. You know, that's a kid who's, who's lacking either pure social motivation, which we know is its own thing in its own area of the brain. And it could be the only thing affected. It's unlikely. Yeah. Or, they don't monitor the world very well. And Mm -hmm. because they don't monitor the world, which is such an early skill too, they fail and they fail and they fail. And then you get this mixture of learned helplessness and poor monitoring skills. You know, I, there are very few kids that we see that we can't take all the way back to those really early skills. Um, And so, yeah, so that's, that's sort of our, people frequently say, can you give me your list? What is the progression? And, um, we're working on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you so you know, as you were talking about that and this idea of uh, motivation. So this, 
you know, you and I have I see these kids all the time who definitely you they're extremely social in the sense that they want to see you, they want to tell you what they're interested in. Yeah, but this motivation, this is I think one of the crucial things uh, that I've been thinking a lot about over the last year or so is this is this motivation piece Mm -hmm. and the idea that can you can you uh, to what extent is it possible to teach a student uh, the desire that that internal motivation to truly scan the environments outside of themselves to have you know to take on perspectives versus doing it because the therapist sort of taught them in a more structured way you know where does where does that you know it, it, where does that structured teaching kind of start in that uh, internal dialogue end I guess is where I'm getting at yeah. it's something I think a lot about too we can um, call each other in the middle of the night on this one you know yeah. I, I our approach at MTA is to say he's not doing it why is he not doing it is it a matter of lack of information and that's why he's not doing it because he doesn't know that somebody's rolling their eyes mm-hmm. <laughs> or he doesn't know that somebody's checking their watch or is it a matter of having the information and not monitoring whether or not the information changed so that's a, a different skill right mm-hmm. or is it a matter of understanding that people have their thoughts but not really having a lot of depth and fluency with that. And those are three different skills. We could probably, we could probably name 10 more. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of them fall in that lower range. And I, I think that we approach each child with a question, and then we go back and we try to fill in, okay, they have the information they need, at least at a basic level. Mm-hmm. We can keep working on the depth of their understanding of those basics. But gosh, he's not monitoring at all. So then we start working on, did you see his face change? When did it change? Yes. Do some of that video and some of that in real life. But, you know, maybe they're doing that pretty well. But once they have the information of the nonverbals and the fact that something changed, how deep is their understanding of perspective? Yeah. And what keeps me awake at night is that we don't, either that we don't know enough about the brain function and how it interacts with itself to have real answers or that they're out there and I haven't seen them yet. <laughs> well, I, I think that's it. I, I think that for a lot of the kids, you know, I think one of the things is we'll never truly, all we can do, it's the same thing to me like sensory integration. You know, I, I think the best OTs out there, I, I, you know, unfortunately, really what you're, you're going on is absurd behavior. We don't know, we don't know what's going on in their brains. So all we can do is sort of form these mental models um, <laughs> ourselves and try to you know, work off of that. Yeah, um, absolutely true. Yeah, I, I think that's what's going on with a lot of kids. Now, one thing I wanted to uh, chime in on about too is uh, this this interesting um, disconnect, and it, it's it's no different, I suppose, in articulation therapy where you you can work on the sound uh, with a particular kid, and of course, the, the the big thing, of course, is generalization. And mm-hmm. one thing that always uh, fascinates me, at least the last couple of years, is are the kids, and I'm thinking of one of my students in particular, who's doing much better job these days looking at video clips or just still images and being able to not only identify what uh, a given person's looking at, but what they might be thinking and talking about the factors that would go into that. But of course, in real life, uh, there's still that disconnect. They're still not, they're not fluidly uh, 
entering a room and taking in uh, different information. Uh, and and where is again bridging that gap between what happened in that therapy room and and real world success? You know, I always think about a kid I had once. He was thirteen or fourteen. This was further south than I am now. Um, and he said to me once he had been suspended. He his perception was a kid had he called it stripped his books out of his hand, knocked his books out of his hand on purpose. Ah. And his perception was he'd gone to adults about this before and hadn't been listened to, again, his perception. Um, and so he had been suspended for fighting back. And I said, what could you have done? He named all the things he could have done perfectly. I said, so what happened in that moment? And he said, it just didn't bubble up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's, the, that's the phrase for it, isn't it? It just didn't bubble up, yeah. I knew all that stuff, and it just, in the moment when I was dysregulated and mad, it didn't bubble up. Now, that later turned to, when I asked, why did you do it a second or third time, he said, because I didn't think anyone would ever listen to me, and I had to solve it myself. Mm. So, you know, we adults have a lot to think about in our reactions to our kids, too. Um, but at least in the beginning, his feeling was it just didn't bubble up. That's a yeah. That's a interesting point, and it made me think as you were talking about that. How really, when you think about it, we're all everybody just just so shows you the range of uh, behaviors and struggles that everybody has. You know? right. And so it's sort of like when you made me when he was when as he was saying as you were saying what he was you know just didn't bubble up. It could I could have very well said the same thing about my sugar addiction. You know, <laughs> why did you eat that chocolate chip cookie? Well, it just didn't bubble up. I just didn't, I wasn't thinking about it. There's another part of me that was reacting to it. And, right. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, we're all struggling with things. We can all learn things in a, in a very uh, structured or very, uh, you know, in a limited format. And then when we need to apply it, we kids can't do it. You know? <laughs> I know. Well, I think you speak to the human condition that yeah. sometimes we forget about with our kids too, you know, there's an emotional, de- emotionally developing kid in there. Yeah. Um, and that's happening simultaneous to all these social issues. Yes. And it's just one more thing we have to keep in mind because mood disorder, really, you know, depression can be a real big issue, really big issue for our kids. Yes. Um, it's, it keeps keeps it really relevant to be working with multiple disciplines all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it always, I always go back and think about something. Uh, I you know, saw Barry Prezant speak uh, years ago, and uh, he. I remember at some point in his talk, he said, "Don't ever forget that these kids are just kids. Yeah, um, they have the same struggles and the same uh, the, the same hopes and uh, fears as everybody else. Uh, they're they may have autism, but they're kids nonetheless. They need downtime. They need to be supported in every other way that any other kid would. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to ask you." You know, something else again, just a random thought has been uh, going through my mind recently. Uh, we have, so in my program, you know, and this isn't unique at all to uh, my program, we, we deal with uh, behaviors all the time. And uh, so many of them are male adaptive and, uh, you know, some kids have behavior plans written into their IEPs. Sure. And one question that's been, you know, bugging me since, day one okay <laughs> of of me entering the school district and uh i'm gonna you know this may be a hot button issue but i was talking okay so 
and many, not all, well, I guess all the teachers to some extent use different uh, reward systems in their in our program. So in other words, um, I can think of one classroom, they have a, you know, like a one, two, three kind of system that uh, we're going to do our reading block right now. And um, as we get through this half hour, you'll get a one, then a two, and a three, and then you're going to choose uh, a reward for, mm-hmm. for sitting through uh, this block. Now, I have always been, um, I, I follow, you know, to respect the teachers because ultimately it's their students. But I've never, I, I see how it can work, at least in the short term and on the surface level, but I've never enjoyed the idea of using an external uh, reward system like that because I know different psychologists have told us for, uh, in the past that internal motivation is always the best. The minute you put an external carrot out there, the activity becomes work for the sake of work. I was wondering what you thought about that. I think you're, you're right on the money with that. I think, it, I think speech therapists in general, especially if you've worked with young children as opposed to adults, have been trained that external reinforcers, especially tangibles like that, are the lesser valuable of the reinforcers. If you can embed their interests into the activity, um, you're going to get a lot further and things are going to generalize more readily. Um, now, having said that, we also have a bias, we as adults have a bias against using things that are genuinely reinforcing if they don't look age appropriate. Mm-hmm. And school districts, you know, they, they certainly uh, are getting better about this, but certainly worry if we're using things that don't look age appropriate. Um, so being able to use that something that's a little bit closer to intrinsic motivation can sometimes be muddied by the fact that you don't want the 12 year old watching whatever the current cartoon of the day is. Right. Right. You know, um, but gosh, if we could have used those characters to talk about whatever we're talking about or to role play or to do whatever it is, um, certainly that would have been the stronger reinforcer. Um, there are times when, Kids just have to do things whether they want to or not. And sometimes we have to go to external reinforcers. And I get that. You said that too. I mean, yeah. you get that too. Um, but if we're really doing the hard work of language and social, the closer we can be to their actual interests and motivators, the, the better we're going to be. Yeah. And, you know, and I found just to, um, you know, I, I suppose the, uh, in, in our program, the classroom that relies on, the external rewards in the one, two, three, in some case, five steps uh, systems, uh, the kids tend to be uh, more, I would say more in the severe range. Um, not all, not all of them, but, and, and I think in, in a sense, I think the question that sort of come up is I, you know, I, you know, the teachers sort of, I think they sort of have an idea that I'm not a huge fan of it, but <laughs> sort of the response I always get is sort of, well, what's the alternative? And, you know, the alternative to me is sort of, this idea is of using um, uh, interests, you know, student-led interests. You know, it's like it, it goes back to um, my talk with, uh, you know, Temple Grandin for years has talked about, you know, if their interest is Thomas the Tank Engine, well, use Thomas the Tank Engine to teach all those concepts that you want them to learn, the numbers, shapes, colors, um, you know, so forth. And there's that, but then the the teachers will often come, I, I've, I've said this before, and the 
the um, the response I get to that is often, well, the problem with that is that I have a group of three students, and you know, student A over here might like Thomas the Tank Engine, but what about student B who's interested in you know Peter Pan? Yeah, yeah it takes us back to especially for the kids who are really working on early skills. It takes us back to group instruction and the question of whether group instruction is actually the way to go for those folks. Mm. Um, I know, talk about a hot top and hot topic, right? Or a hot button topic. Yeah. Um, kids who are not externally or, or I should say are not motivated by their social environment and we'll say yet, hopefully we'll, they're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and kids who are not motivated to do things they're not particularly interested in without an external reinforcer are not really kids who are doing their best learning in a group. Mm. And so we write a lot of recommendations for one-to-one work, both with a speech therapist and in the classroom. I, I always, you know, one of the things I have a lot of, uh, I'm always very uh, humble about the fact that I never expect that if I should be in the school district 10, 15, 20 years from now, that what is today will be, you know, tomorrow. You know, I, I'm at a point in my career, I think every, I, I, I don't uh, take at face value any of my beliefs. I, everything's up for grabs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that probably makes you really good at what you do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I always tell people like, you know, you know, this is, I'm, I'm working off the best information that I think I have today. Mm-hmm. I could completely change course next year based on new information that I get. But, you know, that's, I, I, I truly think, I think we're living in interesting times. And I think that 10, 15 years from now, uh, my classrooms can look very different than they do today. And, yeah. and I think they will, actually. <laughs> I think something's, I think the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about autism, I, I think things are going to shift uh, tremendously. And this, you know, I, until you said that, uh, talking about working individually, it's, it never really occurred to me. Well, because the system is so strong, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and hard to change. I do think that it's much easier from a private practice to say that. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, both sides of that. Uh, one of the things that we say, all the time to anybody that'll listen uh, is that when it comes to autism spectrum disorders, social language and social in general needs to be treated like a subject. Mm-hmm. It's, it's as important as reading. It's as important as math for these kids. And to treat it like a subject means to clear something away f- from their day mm-hmm. in order for there to be more focus on this particular skill and then once you get more focus on this particular skill, how are you going to use that time? Are you going to use it one-to-one? Are you going to use it in a group? Um, maybe you're going to use it in some combination. But the the power of treating it like a subject, at least in, in our minds, is that the time is available. It's not every kid, whatever the team decided. It's just there's a time in the day for this. And now how are we going to use that time the most wisely? Well, and also, also with the common core these days, we have all these social emotional learning components. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's not as if uh, it's out of left field, right? You know. Um, so just curious in your clinic when you have 
um, when you have a new client and, and the chief concern or, or you've decided with the parent that you really want to target um, uh, social cognitive skills, do you, does it depend on the kid or do you, t- do you tend to start with them one-on-one before possibly introducing them in a group? How does that typically work? We almost always begin working with them one-to-one. Yeah. Um, these, these skills are so hidden you know, or the rules are so hidden in society and in daily interactions that we spend a lot of time doing that uncovering piece. Mm -hmm. And so since every kid has come through a different situation and has a different brain, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out which pieces are hidden for them yeah, so that we can eliminate them. Um, And being part of a small private practice, we don't always have that many kids to choose from in terms of creating a good match. But good matches are the name of the game. Because if you have kids who are dramatically different on their travel through that social engagement realm and up into social cognition, then you have a group that's not working on the same set of skills. Yes. And, and you when know, that's, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that was, you know, the issue with me being in that I was in a solo private practice for, you know, roughly 13 years before going back to the schools. That was always. I, people had always asked me to do that, but I, that was one of the reasons why I, I don't think I ever got into the social cognitive piece as much as I'd wanted to or should have, because as a solo, you know, you didn't have as many, uh, you know, I didn't have as many kids in the caseload as a, uh, as a multidisciplinary clinic or even as a group practice. And right. so when you don't have as many kids, and even among the kids that I did have, not everyone was on the autism spectrum or, or needed work in social communication. So, it was always a challenge. I said, you know, I'd love to do this. I'd love to try this. But um, looking down the road, I don't know who I would match this person up with. So. It's very challenging in private practice. And it's not easy in schools either. No. yeah, You can't control who you have. You know, so I, I frequently make this bid for a dedicated social time. We, we tend to call them lab mm-hmm. for a social lab. Um, but then I say to families, if there are not kids that it makes sense to group with, there's nothing anybody can really do about that. You know, in a, in a private practice, I can say, do you know, does your child have a friend you can bring? You know, because we can do some of this stuff in a dyad. Um, often they say no, that they don't have someone, mm-hmm. you know, that, that makes sense in terms of a match. Um, but we feel pretty strongly that kids need to match on their social, where they are on that social climb, as opposed to on language. Mm-hmm. Um and I should say expressive language, um, because the way that they express themselves or how complex their language is doesn't make as much difference to us as how they're doing, how they're analyzing their world socially. It's interesting that you say that because I've I've wonder um, about you know I try to sort of coalesce this idea. I have one student in a social language group that I do uh, on a weekly basis, who has, in the last couple of years, made really great strides. You know, I've been sort of, uh, I think you've heard the Marge Blanc episodes. Um, yes. Uh-huh. On echolalia. And I have a kid who's clearly, he used to be uh, so much stage one, just a pure gestalts and some mitigation, mm. but he's clearly on the road now, you know, where you would, you hear his language and it just sounds so awkward, but it, 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 What's really underneath all that is the fact that he's really made some meaningful gains 
and that he's sort of still he's just sort of figuring out but his his language sounds awkward and as he sits there and tries to um sort of explain things socially he it's it's interesting how um i hear it and i'm like he's sort of he's talking around it he's sort of he's i i feel like he's getting it but if his language was at a place where you know he had more of the grammar he had some of this word finding i i would probably hear it at a different level and give me a different indication as to you know to the, to the extent to which he really does have it does that make sense it makes so much sense i i had a young man that i worked with for a hundred years you know and, and when i first got him at three he was just to do first words but some of his first words in that first year were things like um he'd point to his ve- the vein on his arm and say ink you know yeah <laughs> wow i mean that's an abstract concept i mean so yeah something dark under yeah. the hair. What is that? Or I remember the day that he pointed to the sky and said, God. Ah. And wow, his language is not matching up. Yeah. With his thought. No wonder, and no wonder he's so mad, right? Yeah. And, and behaving poorly. Um, but not matching up at all. And at about 14 or 15, his expressive language sounded more like pidgin English. Yeah. You know, it was still very hard coming and very stilted. But if you gave him a theory of mind task, two, three people deep, and you gave him a visual for a person with a thinking bubble with a person in it with a thinking bubble, Uh with a person in it with a thinking bubble, he could answer all your questions. Whoa. (laughs) Right. And you would never have thought it from his language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, it's, been a long time coming for this full understanding but i do think that even though the language output looks like the end product or or where you want to be you really need to make these choices with kids on their social cognitive level or social level yeah it just that's you know just getting to what we started with how it's such a spectrum i you know i i have um in that same social group we have you know two kids one one of the other kids who's clearly more a lot of stage one utterances, but he came into the social group with more um, of basic appreciation of you know, had better theory of mind, but much harder time expressing it. Yeah. You know, so he just cannot, you know, he, he uses the overlearned phrases constantly. Um, that's it. You know, his famous phrases, he'll say it over again. Looking, looking is thinking. He'll say it all the time. Oh. As he's trying to formulate what it is that the guy's looking at or thinking about, he'll just say, he'll, he'll, that's his sort of yeah. default phrase, looking is thinking. I'm like, yeah. And it's like, I see him struggling, you know, and he, so to, an, uh, to uh, a new observer, like, well, he's just sort of repeating that. He's not, you know, he's not really answering the question, but he is trying to answer the question. It's just, that's the best he can come up with. Trying so hard. Yeah, yeah. You're really pulling for him. Well, then you have the other kids who are talking nonstop and don't have a clue what the other person is thinking. Yes. <laughs> not one clue. Um, so yeah, language level is not always the best to think about in terms of the social social matching of peers. Yeah. You know, we've done peer training over the years too. But I think the biggest um, trouble with peer training is that it is done out of for the for the peers. The motivation is not true friendship. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the motivation is to help someone, which is a fantastic motivation and one that we, of course, always encourage. But when you match kids on their on their social language level, their pragmatics, um, they are so much more likely to develop true friendships. And so the peer training piece has its place. Yeah. Uh, typical peer training piece. Um, but it's not the end-all be-all. I guess if, if there were anything else that I would want to talk about, it would be how we think about how we think about social development and where you're, you are currently and then where you want to be at some future point. And I think the reason that this is on my mind is because we see a fair number of 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds who we are frequently saying we're looking at that 6 to 10-year-old range again mm-hmm. in terms of social. Um, but what is our goal at this point? Because I can break down all those individual pieces and we can work on teaching them. But what do we know about this child's goals for life? And what do we know about our goals for him mm-hmm. for life? So that developmental sequence still kicks in, um, but we're looking at it a little bit differently as the kids age. And I can feel myself see the same stuckness, for lack of a better word, that same, oops, I got up to this perspective taking point and started to really struggle. I can see that in 10-year-olds, and I have a really different approach to what I say I want for them and what I want to do than I do when they are 18 and 20 and 21. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it really has to do with what our goals for the kids are. I feel like I am certainly the bigger the gap is between the age of the child who comes in and where they are in terms of social language, the the bigger the bearer of bad tidings I am, mm-hmm. which is a really uncomfortable place to be as a therapist. And I, I could be tempted to say, let's just work on all these skills he doesn't have. Well, you know, that makes me think about the fact that, you know, you, you brought up before how social cognitive thinking needs to be a subject, treated like a subject. And one of the things that's been so uncomfortable for me, with that being said, okay, one of the things that, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, and it's really, really tough to figure out what are you going to focus on. And one of the things that, you know, the kids, uh, there's this idea that, the, you know, the, that we need to treat um, our kids in terms of what are the, you know, in terms of common core standards and what are their typical quote-unquote neurotypical peers learning what are they getting exposure to and so i guess what i'm getting at is that you know they'll learn about something you know it's the constitution the constitution's birthday today or it's you know black history month and sometimes i sit there and i'm thinking to myself yes i mean you can see you can almost frame it it's sort of like i can sort of see someone saying jeff they need to learn this as much as anybody else does and i'm thinking i'm like you know Yes, they need to learn it in a sense that it's out there and it's important. It's world knowledge, but for a kid who has a, such a low vocabulary, or who has so many other foundational skills and joint attention, um, and spontaneous communication, and they can't ask for help. I mean, you know, is it is it really the best place to put even a small chunk of our time? I definitely, I am a big believer. 
that there are skills that you teach because they're running in parallel to a skill that will eventually they'll cross and he, and you you will have needed both of those skills yeah for it to make sense but yeah to some degree yeah kids who are focusing very heavily on any particular skill that is not directly linked to where a child is functioning in terms of the way they evaluate what's going on in their own world. Mm -hmm. Um, The further it gets from that, the harder for me it it is to justify. Yeah. And I I feel like, and again, I'm not, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that, you know, some kids might be internally motivated or or want to learn about it. I've seen everything, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, putting down uh, gen ed curriculums and, and uh, science. I'm, that's not my, my thing at all. But I think a lot of our learners, you know, who are still at a very learning some truly just basic joint attention and foundational skills. I think that there has to be kind of, like I said, an alignment with where they are and, and what their, what their needs are at the, at the moment in time. And I, I think it's hard because we have this notion of what, you know, someone goes to quote unquote school and what a school is supposed to be what it's supposed to look like, what the room is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to function throughout the day. And, um, you know, it's, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't always match up the way we want to. It doesn't. And it's one of the biggest pet peeves about Lunch Bunch. Um, yeah. <coughs> pardon me. Sure. Um, my biggest pet peeves about Lunch Bunch because it seems like the perfect place to teach and generalize social skills. And there will be the occasional kid for whom that's true. Yeah, But most of the time, we are asking kids to multitask with lunch and language um, in a really dysregulated sensory spot. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it kind of makes sense on the surface, but if we really look at what we're trying to teach and where that the thing we're trying to teach aligns with sort of a person-centered planning thinking uh, way of thinking about this kid is that where we want to spend our time and is that how we want to do it um i just encourage and, and some of this probably has to do with age to the aging speech therapist um but the when we work with families and if there's any disagreement on the team about what's important and what's not important mm-hmm. the thing to do is to go back and, and think about this child in a person-centered planning you know where we're in second grade what do we see for when he switches to uh, to middle school? Mm-hmm. You know, wh- where do we want him to be on this, 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 and this? Okay, we're in eighth grade. Where do we see him at 21? Yeah. And let's set up our goals accordingly. Um, it's just something that, that I think a lot about, and I think that the speech therapists don't often have the time mm-hmm. to think about and don't have the um, leeway, for lack of a better word. They're not they're not the person who would typically bring this up yeah, yeah. at a meeting, right? But they are also the one who is most often in, sort of in charge of that social uh, skill development. Shared, obviously, but... Oh, sure, yeah. I, I think about that, you know, I, I've thought about um, the vocational question for, you know, quite some time. And uh, I, I really, I have a lot of concerns about, you know, generations coming up uh, you know, the current generation, subsequent generations, and I think about just the way the world is changing uh, in terms of, you know, 20 years from now, we're probably going to have driverless cars. It's going to be the norm. And so the notion of having necessarily, you know, um, 
bus drivers, garbage garbage pickup will probably be, be automated at that time. And so mm. I think a lot of uh, just uh, jobs that we sort of take for granted these days are going to go by the wayside. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a world that we can't even predict. And I, I just wonder uh, what that's going to look like for just all sorts of individuals uh, you know, with disabilities. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh yeah, that's another subject. <laughs> that's another <laughs> time. Okay, so um I think we'll wrap it up here. Excellent. Um but I really appreciate it. So just a uh, couple of things before we sign off. Uh your do you have an estimated uh, timeline as far as completion for your uh, social cognitive scales or I will tell you we are looking for um graphic designers and um or probably one um, and programmers right now Ah. we would like this to be in the form of something you can pull up on your ipad okay and uh, be able to input data immediately so we're still in the early stages of this i i don't anticipate anything in the next for the next couple of years couple years okay um where's the best place for people to find you more about you your practice uh contact all that stuff two places um our website is under construction but it's still you can still access it to get information mm-hmm. it's mmtaspeech.com and our facebook page um which is a really good place to look just put in our google our uh, whole name medley mystery therapy associates okay very good and uh, before i go i just want to say uh thank you to one of the clinicians at your practice, uh, is it Mary Therese? Am I getting her name right? It is Mary Therese Sabatino. Sabatino. She's wonderful. She put us in touch. Yeah, she put us in touch uh, initially, and I want to thank her for uh, for doing that. So thanks a lot, Mary Therese. <laughs> um, okay, so that's it. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time, your on a Sunday afternoon of all, of all times, to uh, to do this. Here on Super Bowl Sunday, we do have to go, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> we got the... <laughs> Game starting here. I mean, it's, a, it's in Chicago right now. It's about 3.10 and kickoff's, what, in a couple hours? I don't know. That's right. Plenty on TV, I'm sure, already. Yeah, a lot of pregame stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Lynn. Take care. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. All right. Bye now. Okay. I don't know about you, but that was an awesome conversation. And I'm so lucky that I get to record these and listen to them multiple times before they're uploaded, these episodes. Because... You know, as I'm having these conversations, I'm also I'm, I'm multitasking. I'm I'm watching audio levels constantly and making sure that I haven't lost <laughs> via Skype the uh, the participants. <laughs> so um, I am paying attention. But you know, it's it's one of those things where like I listen to a point that Lynn has made, and I can think about it in the moment, but I really think about it the second or third time. And so, like, just a couple of things jumping out at me. One is this idea of group instruction versus one-on-one. And I, as someone who works in this school, I know how challenging uh, this is and can be. And I know we have this luxury in private practice of working with kids one-on-one. That's most of what a lot of us do. But in the schools or other settings, it can be quite a challenge. And it's a conversation I think we need to keep having as we you know, go forward. Um, and as, you know, the other thing is, again, that, that whole peer buddy thing. Um, I know we try to incorporate the use of peer buddies in my school and my program and i think for the most part it's been a very positive experience even if it may not lead to the desired outcomes always i think it is nice and our kids certainly enjoy it but i i think it's it is food for thought in terms of 
what are the priorities? What are we really achieving um, out of this? And um, what can we do to to improve it? So um, with that, thank you again, Lynn, for being on the show today. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please do send them my way. Jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Steppen. There's no H in Steppen. Uh, I am on Facebook as well. You can look for Conversations and Speech Pathology, the uh, Facebook page. Uh, Any program suggestions, anything else, let me know. Thank you all so much. I'll see you next time.